Namo tassa pakawato arahato sammasambuddhassa Namo tassa pakawato arahato sammasambuddhassa Namo tassa pakawato arahato sammasambuddhassa Buddhang tamang sanghang namasami This is the occasion of uh, Asala Puja, the full moon day of July. And uh, this uh, is the anniversary of the, um, the first uh, setting in motion of the Wheel of Dhamma, the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana. Uh, and we recited this evening the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta, the, the discourse that the Buddha gave uh, all those many centuries ago uh, in the... Uh, the Deer Park in Varanasi, and uh, so some of you will be familiar with the the story, the background to these, uh, uh, say, the giving of these teachings, and some of you uh, will not. But just uh, to recount that um, that uh, that tale, uh, to uh, say uh, revisit that for those of us who are familiar, or and also for those for whom it's not familiar, just to. Uh, Bring to attention what uh, what happened uh, and, and how that came about, and and what the results have been of that uh, uh, that formulation of that teaching. Uh, shortly after the Buddha's enlightenment, uh, the uh, inclination of the newly enlightened Buddha was that uh, the insight that had arisen within him was so subtle, so profound, so um, kind of uh, see, uh, against the 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 stream of human habit and and the uh, patterns of thinking of humanity that there was no point in uh, trying to teach that was the the first thought in his mind was that the whole world is is addicted to becoming is attached to defined being to to becoming is attached to existence it relishes existence and and defined being it's attached and and uh, say obsessed with a defined existence, and so his first thought was: "There's no tr- there's no point trying to express any of this. No one's going to understand." And that uh, famously arose in the mind of the Buddha, and it was a disinclination to teach or to share his understanding. And then, uh, as the story goes, that uh, thought was uh, picked up in the mind of the. Uh, uh, the great uh, Brahma deity Sahampati, and realizing, oh my goodness, the uh, the world will be lost. The world will be utterly lost if the the newly awakened Buddha doesn't teach. And so the the uh, inclination was to come back to the, come down to the earth, come to the world, and appear in front of the Buddha to to uh, to entreaty to ask the the uh, the newly awakened Buddha. Uh, to reconsider and uh, instead to teach. So the invitation for the Dhamma talk that we had this evening and we do uh, every uh, week on the moon days here, that recounts that exact incident, Brahma, Chaloka, Dipati, Sahampati. Some of you might be familiar with the translation, some of you might just know the words, but that's what it refers to. It's where this uh, the, the Brahma deity Sahampati uh, came and requested, please, for the sake of those with uh, just a little bit of dust in their eyes. Please uh, 
consider sharing your understanding, sharing your your teaching with uh, with the world, and then uh, the Buddha, uh, as the story goes, then cast his vision around the world and realized, uh, yes, you know this uh, this Brahma God is correct. There are some beings with a lot of dust in their eyes, people who won't understand, beings who are very heavily conditioned and unable to see the, the truth of the way things are, but there are some with just a little dust in their eyes. And for the benefit of those uh, those uh, who have just got a slightly obscured vision, who, uh, who have the potential to understand, then uh, he agreed to teach. So then uh, he considered, well, uh, who... Uh, who is there that might understand? Who do I know? Who have I been associated with that I feel might be uh, able to comprehend these uh, these insights, might be able to appreciate what uh, has just been understood, what has been awakened to at the, uh, the uh, Enlightenment? So he considers his teachers, uh, Udaka Ramaputta uh, and... Um, uh, the other teacher, whose <laughs> name is escaping me, Alara Kalama, thank you very much. <laughs> Alara Kalama and Dudaka Ramaputta, and uh, realizing that they had both uh, recently passed away, he then thought, uh, well, what about those five uh, other ascetics that I used to practice with, the five companions that uh, he had been with before he'd set off uh, on his own uh, individual path? And he realized, yes, well, they, they could possibly understand. And they were all living together in the deer park in Varanasi, outside of Varanasi. Uh, at Saranath. So he set off uh, f- uh, from Budgaya, uh, the place of enlightenment, and made his way towards uh, the deer park outside of uh, Varanasi, and traveling uh, stage by stage on foot. Uh, and along the way, he met uh, another, uh, another wanderer called Upaka and Ajivaka, uh, another ascetic wanderer. And Upaka was very impressed with the, the demeanor of this, uh, uh, this uh, the newly enlightened Buddha as he's walking along the road and was very struck by his radiance and his, his peacefulness, his clarity of his uh, expression. And so Upaka asked him, who are you, friend? Your, your face is very bright. Your, your manner is very, very peaceful, very radiant. Have you awakened to some kind of profound insight? Uh, uh, have you reached some sort of uh, spiritual realization? And who is your teacher? What is your practice? And then the, the, the Buddha responded to Upaka saying, um, yes, indeed, I have uh, realized full and complete enlightenment. I have uh, awakened to, uh, to the, the Dhamma. And uh, in fact, I'm the only enlightened being in, in, in the world. And uh, I have no teacher. I have arrived at this through my own efforts. And Upaka, then uh, kind of startled by this declaration, that this, uh, this person he's just met saying that they're, they're totally enlightened and they're, they're the, this is the only enlightened being in the world is, is a bit suspicious. And says, so, so do you say that you've, you've realized the, the deathless? You've awakened to the... Uh, uh, the unborn, undying, deathless reality, and uh, the Buddha says, "Yes, that's correct. Yeah, I, uh, I have uh, indeed realized, fully realized the deathless, and I now go to the city of uh, to Kasi's city, to Varanasi, to beat the drum of deathlessness." And so Upaka, thinking, "Well, this this person's really uh, overestimating their attainment. They're, they are, let's say." Uh, uh, a bit lost in their own delusion, says, oh, well, good for you, friend, and takes off by a different path. 
And uh, as Lumpur Sumato has often uh, sta- uh, made the comment in, uh, in many, many Dhamma talks, is that the Buddha then was a very quick learner and realized, okay, that kind of declaration, that sort of statement of, uh, you know, I am totally enlightened, uh, that alone doesn't have a good effect. The Upaka heard that even though what he, the Buddha was saying was true, what he said was, was, was factual, but because of, of uh, Upaka's uh, uh, say uh, skepticism, his uh, his uh, unreadiness to to uh, follow that up, and also that the the Buddha didn't give much of an explanation or much teaching. And the Upaka said, "Well, okay, good for you, friend. You know, bye bye," <laughs> and uh, uh, took off to uh, uh, to pursue his path in a in a different way. So the Buddha learned uh, very quickly. Okay, just declaration on its own is uh, is not enough. There, uh, there needs to be um, uh, a bit more in the way of uh, of explanation and clarification. And so, by the time he got to, to the deer park outside of Varanasi, and he came across his five companions, his five uh, former friends there, then uh, he uh, had decided to take a bit of a different approach. And as it describes in the in the suttas, how uh, they had uh, uh, assumed that their friend Gotama, when he had started eating ordinary food and had, uh, say, moved away from the extremely harsh ascetic practices, they thought, well, this our friend Gotama has sort of given up the spiritual path. He was eating ordinary food. He put on some 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 flesh on his bones, so you could. Uh, yeah, you couldn't see his backbone from from his stomach. <laughs> that uh, they assumed, oh, he's given up the ascetic path. He's no longer a really sort of fully ardent yogi. So they, uh, when they saw him coming to the into the the park and to to come and see them, they thought, oh, that's that that uh, that friend of ours, Gotama, the one who gave up the spiritual path. So they decided, oh, we shouldn't get up and greet him. We shouldn't pay respects. We shouldn't uh, treat him as a, uh, in in any special way. But as the story goes, they couldn't stop themselves. They, they, they were unable to keep to their resolution to not get up and, and greet him and pay respects. And they found themselves sort of jumping to their feet and uh, setting out a, a seat for him and giving uh, him some water to drink and to wash his feet and so on. And so then uh, the Buddha spoke to them, as, uh, to his, these five companions of his, and said, um, friends, you know, the deathless has been realized, this uh, the ultimate reality has uh, is now fully known. Uh, the the mind is fully uh, awakened to that reality. And if you listen to what I have to say in, in no long time, you also will be able to awaken to that uh, to that truth. And they uh, they feel like, well, how could you possibly be enlightened? You know, you gave up on the spiritual path. You started eating ordinary food, and you were. Um, Say you are one who turned away from the spiritual practice, as as we all understood it. And the the Buddha then repeats what he said. You know, the the deathless has been realized; <laughs> it has been awakened to. If you pay attention to what I say, then in no long time you also will realize this. The, the uh, this being a Buddhist story, they do this three times over. That they say, you know, how can you be enlightened? He says, well. Yeah. This has been uh, uh, this truth has been awakened to, and then f- finally after the third time he says, "Have I ever spoken to you in this way before?" And they say, "No, friend, you have not." Okay, <laughs> so the deathless has been realized. Uh, this truth has been fully is has been fully known, and so if you listen to me, then 
in no long time you also will awaken to this reality. You too also can uh, uh, realize full and complete enlightenment. So at that point, then they said, okay. <laughs> and they were ready to listen. So that's when uh, the, uh, the, the uh, f- uh, teaching of the Dhamma Chakrabhavatana Sutta, that's where that begins, uh, that we recited this evening. Uh, and the Buddha says, uh, there are two extremes uh, uh, that uh, we easily follow in the spiritual path, the way of indulgence, kamasukhalikanu yoga, and uh, the way of, of self-mortification, atakilamatanu yoga. And so he said, what I teach is the middle way, the majjhima padipada, that avoids these two extremes. And by following this middle way, then this leads to, to realization, this leads to liberation, this leads to peace, this leads to nibbana. And then when he goes into more detail, he starts to explain that and spell that out a bit. He says, so what is this middle way? What is this majjhima patipada? And he spells it out as right view, right intention, or, you know, right resolution, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. That is the middle way. And if this middle way is followed, then this leads to liberation, this leads to realization, this leads to nibbana, this leads to, to peace. And then, again, to spell that out a bit more, <laughs> he then goes into saying, well, this middle, this middle way that is constituted by these eight factors, so how, do you, how, do you, uh, how is it that those eight qualities, how, how is it that those are important? You know, why is it that these are the significant uh, significant elements to to embody to to live by, and then he gives a teaching on the, the four noble truths. Uh, and again, some of us are very familiar with these uh, four noble truths, and some uh, are not. But uh, to sort of spell that out, and as uh, on this occasion of the Asala Puja, so this was the first time that the, the four noble truths were described, and uh, and it's also significant uh, that from the time where he gave this first teaching uh, until the, uh, the Parinibbana at the end of, uh, of his life in the human realm, uh, some uh, uh, 45 years later, at the age of 80, then uh, this really formed the core, he, the, the, the Four Noble Truths, the Middle Way. This was really the essence of his teaching right from that very first time right to the very end uh, of his teaching career. This uh, was the, the framework for, for his teaching and the, the liberating insights that he brought to the world. So this was like the entire teaching or the complete teaching was, was really uh, presented right there at the very beginning and that was sustained throughout the whole of his life. So the Four Noble Truths is cast into the form of a, a kind of medical diagnosis and it starts off with what is the symptom? Yeah, what is the the, uh, uh, the what's the problem? Really? The spiritual disease, and it's like, so the first noble truth is that of dukkha, uh, and dukkha literally means uh, that feeling of of wrongness, things being out of balance, uh, dissatisfaction, discontent, and that. Uh, the, the feeling that you know the universe shouldn't be this way, life shouldn't be this way, there's something wrong with life. So dukkha is uh, not just the uh, painful feelings of the body or sad feelings or unhappy feelings in the mind, it's also that even when something is sweet and delightful, that it can't be kept, it can't be owned. Also, like when you, you look at a, a beautiful flower, 
then uh, or a beautiful sunset, or, you know, and you think, "Oh wow, that's so delightful!" And the, or you smell a, a, a beautiful, uh, the beautiful fragrance of a rose. There's that moment of impact, like, "Oh my goodness, that's beautiful. That smells delightful. Oh, what lovely colours!" And and yet that kind of wow that can't sustain itself, even though there's that moment of impact, of delight, that that wow factor. It can't sustain itself if you notice. Uh, after a few seconds, three or four seconds, that the, the, the delightful uh, and luminous colors, the mind starts to get used to it. That beautiful fragrance is, starts to become ordinary after a few seconds. That, that, that delight, that, that full satisfaction, that, that kind of compelling feeling, it can't sustain itself. So dukkha is also that unsustainable quality of any kind of sensory happiness or delight, you, know, you can't stay in that wow <laughs> mode uh, that can't sustain itself. So dukkha is also that unholdable, that unownable quality of even delightful, pleasant or, or beautiful feelings. So that's the, that's the definition of the spiritual disease or the, the symptom is dukkha. That, we, uh, that, that uh, no sensory experience or no uh, mental I- event, no idea, no emotion can be permanently and completely satisfying. Yeah, they can't do that. The dukkha is that. That's the the, uh, the the disease, the symptom of the disease. Then the second noble truth, uh, again, like any, like going for a, 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 a visit to the doctors. Okay, this is the, the dukkha is the symptom. What's the cause? So then the, the second noble truth defines what's the the root of that dissatisfaction, that that feeling of wrongness or incompleteness, that sense of of uh, things being uh, un, uh, uh, unownable or unsatisfying, and the Buddha spells that out as tanha, craving, both the the um, uh, very obvious and tangible kind of craving or, or desire, the craving for sense pleasure. Uh, and uh, that's the most ob- when we think of desire or craving those are the kind of things that we easily think of like craving for for beautiful sights and sounds and smells tastes uh, beautiful uh, possessions but then there's two other kinds of desire that are more subtle less less visible less tangible but e- equally uh, impactful on our hearts, our minds, and these are bhavatanha and vipavatanha. And again, those of you who've listened to many of Lumpur Sumato's Dhamma talks uh, over the years, uh, or read many of his books, well, no, he emphasizes these two uh, kinds of desire as uh, uh, extremely important. They are the the desire to become, the desire to to for defined being, bhavatanha, the desire to be something, Ambition, uh, the competition, the, the wanting to be seen in a particular way, wanting to to be something, <laughs> bhavatanha. Even wanting to, uh, to the, the the satisfaction that we get from being a failure or being rejected or being um, someone who is uh, who has problems, that that uh, even that kind of an identity, something in us can say, yes, that's what I am. I'm a person with problems, or you know, I have been rejected. I am a failure. That's what I am. That that am uh, is bhavatanha, and that even if it's something apparently painful or, or unpleasant, we can still get a, a charge, a, 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 
a, a kind of boost just from grasping that and identifying with even even painful psychological qualities. Vibhavatanha is the desire to get rid of, to, to not feel, to not be, wanting to switch off. So a lot of the reasons why people drink alcohol, take, uh, take, uh, take drugs and so forth, or seek distraction, is to switch off, to not feel, to not be, to be annihilated. Yeah. When, uh, when I was a, a teenager, many years ago, I was uh, reminded of some of my teenage years during uh, conversations with people today, that was quite commonly spoken of. You would go out on a Friday night or Saturday night, quote-unquote, to get obliterated. That was the stated purpose, is to go out and get obliterated, to get wiped out. To, uh, and so uh, when I came coming across Buddhist teachings a number of years later and, and being introduced to Vibhavatanha, it's like, yeah, we actually used to spend good money to pursue the Vibhavatanha <laughs> process to go out and, and drink, to, to not be, to not feel, to switch off, to get, get obliterated. Uh, but uh, that is also a cause of more dukkha. That's uh, wanting to switch off, to not feel, to not be, because it's going against the reality of the, the way things are. And no matter how hard we might try to, to switch off or not feel, not uh, to not be, to, to get rid of, then uh, that... Uh, can't ever be fulfilled. I can't ever be satisfied in in any complete or or significant way. So that uh, those habits of craving, uh, craving for sense pleasure, craving to be, craving to not be, these are the cause, the the root of that feeling of of dukkha and dissatisfaction, that feeling of wrongness and imbalance in the jitta. So then, the third noble truth uh, is the prognosis which is okay is it curable is this spiritual disease is it curable or not and then the, the good news is yes it's curable dukkha nirota the ending of that dukkha the ending of that feeling of dissatisfaction is possible uh, health spiritual health is possible so that's the third noble truth is yes this disease uh, it's not permanent, it's not absolute. Dukkha is something that arises and passes away. It's not, uh, it's not the ultimate reality. It, it, it's a, a passing experience. It's a pattern of feeling that comes and goes. And then the, the fourth noble truth is the, the, the middle way, the, the eightfold path. And so when the, the Buddha is um, so spelling out the four noble truths, he's really explaining this is why what we need to do is uh, embodied in the eightfold path. It's uh, because of this, because of the experience of dukkha, and that dukkha can be dispelled. The way that you get from truth number uh, number two, the cause of dukkha, to truth number three, the ending of dukkha, is by taking the medicine. So the the fourth noble truth is that's the treatment for this spiritual disease. And so that uh, in, a, in a way the. The spelling out of the Four Noble Truths is saying, this is why the Eightfold Path, uh, uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood, uh, right, uh, right view, right resolution, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, this is why these are essentially important. It's because we're, we're all suffering from this spiritual illness, this spiritual disease, but it can be cured if we take the medicine. And the medicine is the Eightfold Path, which can be summarized bit more simply than the eight factors you can group them into the three chunks of of uh, wisdom uh, virtue and concentration uh, panya 
sila and samadhi. Maybe one of the things also that's helpful to consider in this teaching and and that uh, realizing the importance of the medicine, uh, the Eightfold Path, and and taking the medicine and committing, uh, if we want to be cured of this spiritual illness of of dukkha, if we want the symptoms to to no longer be generated, to to take away the the cause of dukkha, then... uh, to understand what we mean by the, these aspects of the 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 path, the, um, the the eightfold path, the the word sama that is there in each of the those uh, eight factors, uh, it's translated into English as right. So right view, right intention, right speech, right uh, action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So often that the word right in English uh, seems to be the opposite of of wrong, but the the sama in the the eightfold path it's it's more right as in upright or balanced, and the, probably a better way of translating it is attuned. So view that is in tune with reality, intentions or res- the uh, the I say the resolution sama sankapo is the the uh, intending aspect of the mind, what we resolve upon, where, where, how we steer the mind, the decisions that we make, the the the, uh, the choices that are made, uh, that are the choices that are made are in in uh, in tune with dhamma, in tune with nature, at, uh, speech, action, and livelihood that is attuned to uh, to dhamma, uh, so that. It's uh, it's not right as opposed to to wrong, but more what is in tune with reality, what's in tune with nature, and so then there's a uh, an attitude that's say embodied there that is a uh, uh, based upon that letting go of the habits of of our conditioning, the sort of self-centered habits, and with all of the aspects of the eightfold path, learning to let go of the 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 habits of, of of thought, of speech, of action, of of uh, the way that we work in the world, let go of self-centered, ego-centered, egotistical habits, and to let our life be guided by uh, habits and attitudes based on dhamma, based on reality. So that the the fundamental shift in terms of the Applying the practice of, one of taking the medicine, to use this uh, analogy, is letting go of self-centered habits, letting go of our, our attitudes and actions, our words, being guided by egotistical self-centered habits, and instead uh, to shift to a dhamma-centered or nature-centered perspective, to, uh, to look at the world, look at our life from a nature-centered point of view or dhamma-centered point of view. In the flow of the, the the sutta, the teaching, then at a certain point after the Buddha's given the explanation about the Four Noble Truths and saying how it wasn't until he had fully understood the, these uh, Four Noble Truths in, the, in, in a complete way that uh, it was only when he fully understood these, fully knew these, fully realized these, that he then declared full and complete enlightenment. Uh, uh, as he uh, makes that statement, then... Uh, as it says in the teaching, the, 
the eye of Dhamma arose in one of the, the, the group of five monks there, the, the five wanderers, uh, Kandanya, Dhamma Chakung Udapati, the eye of Dhamma arose. So that uh, uh, as the Buddha was giving this explanation, now only one of the five had a profound insight at that point, so that uh, the, the other four uh, caught up later on. But at this time, it says that the eye of Dhamma opened in Kandanya, and uh, that uh, Dhamma Chakung Udapati, the eye of Dhamma, uh, arose. And so that uh, what uh, Kandanya saw, as it, again, as it describes in the sutta, is Yankinchi Samudaya Dhammang Sabantang Niroda Dhammanti. Whatever, whatever is of the nature to arise is of the nature to cease. And so that, that's how the, that, that change of view, that change of perspective is is described in the, the, the heart, the, the mind of of, uh, of Venerable Kandanya at that time. So that might not seem like very much. Uh, what begins ends, what, what goes up comes down. Uh, on a practical level or on a conceptual level, it might not seem like much. Like, you know, as a four-year-old or a five-year-old, you can figure that out, yeah. Whatever begins ends. Whatever arises passes away. If it, what goes up must come down. So? <laughs> but... Uh, uh, as uh, it's, it, it's uh, important to reflect that it's because of the full implications of that that what uh, was realized in in the heart, the mind of of Kandanya at that point is that oh, everything that begins ends, <laughs> whatever arises passes away, and that being the case, that makes a, a very different perspective on this body, this mind, these feelings, these attitudes, the world around, uh, changes the, the perspective. So it's not just the idea that things begin and whatever begins must come to an end as a, as a sort of superficial concept, but really feeling and knowing what that means in terms of being with things that you like, that they're going to change. You can't keep the things that you like being, um, uh, say, burdened by things that you don't like, well, they're, they're also going to end. So how does that uh, change the, the attitude of mind towards what we like, what we dislike? This body is in a constant state of change. It's born, therefore it must die one day. The people around you, they were born, they're going to die one day. Everything is necessarily in a state of transformation and change. So when that's fully and completely known, then it's, uh, there's a, a, a shift of view, there's a change of attitude in the heart. Nothing is recognized, no thing can really be owned, no thing can be held. In a way, there aren't really any things, there are just events. And like you can't own or hold a cloud or a star or, a, or a, uh, uh, the sound of a word, you can't hold it, you can't keep it, you can't own it. Uh, the uh, the the mind recognizes. Oh, that's the case for every single event. No thing can be owned, and there isn't anything here that can do any owning. Aha! And so, in that uh, recognition of the changing, transient nature of every event, every thing that's experienced, there's there's a, an easing, a, a peacefulness. Oh. No thing can be uh, can be owned, and no thing can be lost. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, a lightness of heart, a spaciousness that comes with that 
realization. So then uh, Kandanya uh, uh, understood. Anyasi Watabo Kandanya. Then the Buddha declares at the end, and he, he realizes, ah, Kandanya's understood. Kandanya's understood. Anyasi Watabo Kandanyo. Anyasi Watabo Kandanyoti. And as it says at the very end of the sutta, so from then on, rather than being called Kandanya, he was called Anya Kandanya. And so that became his kind of nickname that was uh, used for, for the rest of his life. And so he was always known as Anya Kandanya, Kandanya who understands uh, from that time on. So this is the uh, the occasion of the uh, Asala Puja, that the, the first teaching of the Buddha and the first person who understood, the first being who uh, understood the teaching to the level of uh, awakening to uh, that, the, at least the first level of enlightenment. At that point, Kandanya didn't realize arahantship. He didn't become fully enlightened, but he entered the stream uh, of Dhamma. He became a stream enterer. Uh, that first level of of enlightenment was established. So the Buddha, at that point, he re- uh, it was clear. Okay, the Brahma Sahampati was correct. There are beings with a little dust in their eyes who will understand. So yeah. The Brahma God was, was correct. Yeah, there are beings with a little dust in their eyes. So it's, it is indeed worth teaching. And so that, uh, the, that delight in the heart of the Buddha is expressed in that uh, Udana. Of, uh, Kandanya understands. Kandanya understands. And that's, it, I, I feel it's very beautiful and inspiring that that same kind of enthusiasm, that delight that arose in the Buddha is... is uh, still recollected and remembered there and uh, recited as part of the, the teaching that that, uh, uh, say, enjoyment, the, 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 uh, the kind of um, sweetness of that moment yeah, was, yes, someone understands. And at that, at that time, it was really the first time that the, the Dhamma teaching had been conveyed, the first time that it had really reached the heart of an individual and had that liberating effect and from that time on, the Buddha gave you know, many, many hundreds, thousands and thousands of, of Dhamma teachings, and many uh, beings uh, became, uh, uh, say, capable of realizing the different levels of, of awakening. But that was the very first occasion, so that's why it's called the setting in motion of the wheel of Dhamma. At that moment, the, the, uh, the wheel of the Dhamma teaching was set rolling, and, uh, and, and it still rolls today, here, 2000. 600 years later, that wheel is still rolling. And uh, how amazing, how incredible that uh, we can be the, uh, the, the recipients and we can be blessed by the presence of these teachings, these practices uh, still alive in the world, still able to be known and understood, still able to be uh, say carried out and to, in this moment, to benefit our, our lives, that that middle way can be embodied in our uh, in our lives, in our, our mode of being, in our speech, our actions, our livelihood, in our uh, in our efforts, in the way that we train our minds, the the way that we develop wisdom, and the way that we relate with each other, and the way that we, we function in the world. One of the the aspects of, of this that I like to emphasize, and when we had the the eight precept ceremony for. Um, uh, Anagarika Martin this afternoon, our newest member of the monastic uh, community, uh, took the eight precepts, uh, determined the eight precepts this afternoon. Uh, one of the aspects that uh, 
I like to emphasize, and I feel it is uh, particularly important, is the way that we um, relate to decision-making, the way we relate to making effort in our lives, the way we relate to the world of work and, and doing and action, choosing. And it's very easy for us to be uh, feeling a sense of, of burden and stress by any kind of task that we undertake, anything that we do, or a sense of responsibility. Oh, I've, got to cho- I've got to choose, I've got to make a decision. <laughs> and that we can be uh, stressed by that, worrying, I want to have a good outcome, I'm afraid it's going to go badly. Uh, or just uh, any kind of work, any kind of effort is, is stressful and burdensome. And we look forward to when we won't have to work, we won't have to act, we won't have to do anything. And so we kind of look forward to the weekend, we look forward to retirement, we look forward to the holiday. Well, I can, uh, I can uh, be, I can relax, or I can be, uh, I can be at peace. I can switch off. And for many of us, it's a kind of vibhava tanha in disguise. I would say that it's just that it's a, a wanting to to not feel, to not be. Uh, and that it's as if any kind of action, any kind of choice, any kind of work, any kind of doing was in, intrinsically stressful. It's a, there's a, a, it's a burden, it's a bhara, it's, there's a tension. And uh, I, I talk about this a lot because it, it's so common in, in, in our lives. So we want to not be burdened, we want to not, to be, not to be stressed, but we feel that it's because of doing... <laughs> Uh, it's because of working, or being with people, or having to uh, to pick up, respons- fulfill responsibilities. We think it's the the work that's the stressor, or the people that's the stressor, or the the responsibility that is the stressing agent. But I would suggest it's not the the work or the people or the responsibility. It's the jitta. It's the the, the mind that is creating the the stress. And uh, I, I like to point out how. Uh, every aspect of the Eightfold Path, uh, it leads towards peace. It, that's why it's the path to peace. The, uh, it's the path to the ending of dukkha. Uh, the, um, that's that's the, uh, the, the, the name of it. The, uh, the, um, the path that leads to the end of dukkha. Uh, dukkha nirodhagamani patipada. The path that leads to the end of dukkha. So every aspect of the path uh, it leads to peace, and so within that within the path you have right resolution or right intention, sama sankapo. So there has to be a way that we make decisions or we make choices, uh, and that uh, that capacity to decide to give our life a direction that has to be a way. There has to be a way that we that can be done peacefully. So that is stress-free, that the actual uh, process of choosing and deciding doesn't have to be stressful or, or burdensome. There has to be a way that's peaceful and leads to peace. Similarly with samavayamo, right effort, or the attuned effort, there has to be a way that effort is made. We, g- not, we give our life a direction, <laughs> we make choices, and we act on that. We, 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 uh, we work, we engage, we, we do our, our jobs, we fulfill our responsibilities. There has to be a way that that isn't a stressor or, or something that's burdensome or a, 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 a hassle, uh, because otherwise it c- there couldn't be 
samavayama as part of the Eightfold Path. There has to be a way that work can be done, effort can be made, which is peaceful and leads and leads to peace. So I, I feel this is uh, really important to, to take to heart because so many of us, and, and as a culture, we kind of that's what people tend to do: waiting to retire, waiting for a holiday, waiting for the weekend. Then I. I can get away from this stress, this burden. But if the attitude is shifted, if the, the eye of Dhamma opens, if the, that change of view is actualized, uh, then that, uh, that we, there's a way that we find that we can make decisions, we can give direction to our life, we can make effort that is, is not stressful. It is not a burden, it's not a hassle, it's not anything that is, is bringing tension and, uh, uh, and dukkha into our, our lives. Learning to, uh, to work and to, to act, to, to make decisions free of self-view, that I, I feel is the, the, one of the most important uh, t- potentials that is here and if that, uh, the, that can be developed so that our choices are guided by mindfulness and wisdom, not by, by ego, not by me and mine, uh, the habits of self-centered thinking. But if we really uh, open the eye of Dhamma and see things from a Dhamma-centered perspective rather than a self-centered perspective, then the decisions that are made are, are guided by mindfulness and wisdom. The effort that is put forward, the work that we do, it's not me having to do this thing, me being burdened with this task, me having to do this responsibility, but rather there is this need, there is a capacity, uh, this appropriate to the time, the place, the situation, effort can be made, uh, fueled, guided and energized by mindfulness and wisdom without any kind of me or mine involved in the mix. There doesn't have to be a, a self-centered uh, element at all. And I feel that uh, you can't just you know, snap your fingers and change the, the habits of attitude and thinking uh, uh, just by uh, a, a, an idea or an act of, uh, of will. It's a training. It's, a, it's a, a process of learning to recognize the habits that are here, the habits that are deeply ingrained, recognizing that how, how easily the mind is driven by self-centered, uh, the, by the uh, atta, the the idea of self, the self-centered habits. Uh, to recognize those habits, to know them, and to see they don't have to be followed. We can train the heart to to let go, to to relinquish those those deeply rooted habits of eye making and mind making. And we can slowly, steadily find ways that oh, we can let the heart make decisions and and uh, and make effort uh, guided by mindfulness and wisdom, that without any kind of uh, self, uh, without any uh, I or me or mine involved. And in those moments where our actions, our words, our our, our choices are guided by mindfulness and wisdom, just seeing what that feels like. What, what is the, the quality of life when it's just an a, 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 a egoless, uh, say, choice or a, 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 the, the work that we do 
the way that we help each other, the effort that we make in the world is just a, a natural response to the needs of the moment without a, an I or a me or mine. Notice what that's like. If there's just a few moments here and there during the day where there's uh, we act or we speak in a selfless way, notice how well that fits in with what's needed. Notice how that sits in the heart and see, oh, look at that. <laughs> you can make effort, you can be involved, you can engage, you can take responsibility without it being a, a problem, without it being a burden, without there being any sense of, of stress or, or tension involved. Aha, look at that. So we, we use the direct experience of the peaceful results of letting uh, action and attitude be guided by sati and panya, mindfulness and wisdom. That direct experience of uh, how that works and the peaceful quality of it, that informs us, that gives us the, the direction for the future. So I offer these thoughts for consideration on this uh, Asala Puja evening. Please uh, take whatever is useful and whatever is not, please leave aside. <laughs>